if you believe that the current system, you know, has been perverted by these mechanisms, that our democracy is suffering from, you know, the network effects of these large corporations, again, I would encourage you to look at Bitcoin because you can arguably say that, that Bitcoin does not operate that way. You know, uh, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of Bitcoin, had no, you know, has, has no founding stake. There's no startup. There's no equity that he has in Bitcoin Corporation. Uh, you know, to the extent that he owns Bitcoin, he he got them through the same process that everyone else did of, of burning energy and then, you know, uh, collecting the issuance of Bitcoin. And because of that, the value approval in Bitcoin is, is fundamentally different, right? So it's, again, to the extent that the left is interested in new structures of power, um, I think they should be really interested in Bitcoin. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Pete Rizzo. Over the course of his 13 years reporting on Bitcoin, he has become one of the most widely read and respected voices in the space. We cover a variety of topics, but primarily focus on what rights Bitcoin grants its users and how it distinguishes itself from other cryptocurrencies. It was a great joy to record this podcast with Pete. I know you will appreciate his keen insights on Bitcoin. Thank you so much for tuning in. All right. Pete Rizzo, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Awesome to be here. Welcome back from the conference. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a wild time. Looking forward to welcoming people who didn't join the Bitcoin 2023. Tickets on sale now. And uh, yeah, hard to hard to surpass the uh, feeling of being at the biggest event in the year. Definitely, uh, it's been quite the come down over the last couple of days. Undoubtedly. Well, we've got a lot to get through. And before we get into the heart of the, the discussion, which I want to focus on with regard to the ethical argument for Bitcoin, one of your uh, pieces in Forbes not too long ago. I just want a few general questions uh, directed towards you since you've got such an incredible expertise and breadth of knowledge uh, within the space. And first and foremost, I'm really kind of curious to know why you have chosen to focus your career on reporting on Bitcoin. Yeah, interesting question. Definitely changed a lot over time. Uh, so, you know, a little bit about me, editor for Bitcoin Magazine, editor at large for Kraken, and a contributor over at Forbes uh, Crypto. Um, I started writing about Bitcoin in, in 2013. And um, yeah, I think at first the answer to that question would have been just because it was a great story, right? When Bitcoin kind of emerged, it was this, um, you know, kind of confusing phenomenon. People were using the strange like internet currency to make transactions and no one quite understood it. Uh, but it was very exciting, right? And there was all sorts of different people from different walks of life joining it, like uh, from small merchants to kind of big venture capitalists. And it was sort of an interesting story because, you know, people from all sorts of walks of life were diverging on this, you know, thing that that we couldn't really quite explain or, or comprehend. But we knew that was very different from like existing kind of payment solutions and monetary solutions uh, at the time. I think uh, as I've gone on in the industry, uh, that's definitely changed. So you know, my answer today, I think, would be uh, the reason that I continue doing work as a journalist or researcher or historian. Uh, there's definitely people who describe my work in different ways is to, you know, one, uh, I think, get across the, the tremendous amount of of um, kind of knowledge that has existed, existed in the space, right? I think um, when we have these cycles in Bitcoin where the price rises and new people come in, it can be hard for them to digest the kind of breadth of things that have happened, right? So that sort of creates this phenomenon where, 
you know, new, new people come in and they, they have these ideas and these ideas may be things that have already happened in Bitcoin and been discussed and discarded and it makes it hard for them to be active contributors. So I think newer people to the industry often struggle to know how to contribute uh, because it, in many ways it's sort of like walking in the middle of a movie that has kind of been going on and has been very complex. Uh, so there may be decisions that happened or conversations uh, that sort of give the answer to what you're looking for, but they're very obscure, right? So they happen in sort of an era of Bitcoin with people in Bitcoin who are no longer really around. Uh, and sort of, you know, I see my work as sort of existing to surface that, right? It's it's to try to get rid of this brain drain effect that we have in Bitcoin where, you know, it, it is just very hard to get your head around just how much has happened, uh, who has been important to Bitcoin, what. Uh, specifically, do they contribute and why they are important? And then using that information to move forward in some way. Um, and certainly there are people who have, you know, uh, found a path for that that's that's a bit accelerated. But I think to the average person, you know, that can be a bit confusing because, um, you know, brain drain happens at all parts in the system. And one of the parts of the system that's most pervasive is in the journalism sector, right, where you have a really heavy rotation of people who are writing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And so then, then your knowledge loss is really not just happening in the industry itself, it's happening in the people who cover the industry. So the people who are covering the industry are covering it as if, if it's new and the people in the industry are treating it, it's, it as if it's new. Uh, and there's sort of this hybrid problem where you know it can seem like in the mainstream news cycles that we're not making that much progress on the on the theoretical like side of understanding Bitcoin when in reality, that's not the case. There is meaningful progress being made there. It's that just... You know, one, it's hard for that information to disseminate itself. Uh, and then the systems by which information is disseminated uh, don't have the right incentives to disseminate that information. <laughs> so uh, there's multiple layers to that problem. And, and uh, I think I see that problem as being, you know, something that is really important for the industry to, to, to solve, because if we can't scale our accumulated knowledge, I think we're going to be in a, a, a rut where we're, you know, repeating a lot of the same work, mistakes, schisms, debates, arguments, etc. When you were first writing about Bitcoin in the early years, you received a lot of criticism for, quote, things that you got wrong. What allowed you to eventually take that feedback and do more research on Bitcoin rather than digging in your heels into why you were right and the Bitcoiners were wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the answer to that question is that, and I think this is really another thing that drives my work, is it's very easy for people who are doing a job to think that they're doing their job well. So I always go back and say, you know, look, I was part of the founding team at Coindesk. I helped scale that to be an international organization, you know, with 60 reporters like working around the globe. And, you know, by the by the definitions of the job, I did that job well, right? I scaled the cryptocurrency journalism uh, side of the ecosystem. I increased the amount of articles that were being produced that, and I, and I, created this sort of journalistic center for the industry that did not have that. Uh, so it is possible for that to be good and value add, but for that system to then exist outside of the knowledge accrual in the industry, which is sort of the problem that I was kind of talking about. Um, so when I look back at my early work, I, I find that in my quest to be objective, um, I, I pursued objectivity within the lens of the discussion sort of assuming that all of the participants that I was speaking with were more knowledgeable than me and then more correct or like intellectually valid in their assumptions. So this sort of metastasize in, you know, the period of Bitcoin history known as the fork wars where, you know, different parts of the ecosystem developed uh, different entrenched psychologies about how Bitcoin functioned, became really militant about that, and then ultimately sort of, you know, came to some sort of... Uh, you know, climactic conclusion where they they sort of battled that out. And so my 
uh, a first attempt at grappling that was to treat it objectively, right? To assume that both sides uh, were being, uh, you know, upfront or had legitimate claims uh, to their stance. Uh, but in reality, that wasn't the case, right? In reality, the uh, a certain group of those people did have more expertise. They did have more of an understanding and they had made more of an attempt to grapple with some of the underlying theoretical parts of Bitcoin, uh, that are more interesting or unique. And I think that over time, I've I've crossed over into seeing that group as being correct. But partly that was because I actually did the research of going back through the old forums, understanding where Bitcoin came from, and, um, you know, really doing my own research. I think it was, um, it's hard for newer people, I think, to understand that in 2013, 2014, it may seem like it was very early, but there was a tremendous sense that Bitcoin was happening, that it had happened, and that it, it had become mainstream, right? In 2013, 2014, the price of a Bitcoin had gone to $1,000, you had major mainstream coverage at nearly every large media entity. The New York Times, you know, sort of had a Bitcoin beat the Wall Street Journal. And in many ways, media saturation at that time was like much higher than it was today. So it was Bitcoin was hitting $1,000 and these, you know, big companies like Coinbase and BitPay were ascendant and positioning themselves as the next Googles and Apples and what, what have you. You know, you had this idea that Bitcoin had happened, that the people who had made money maybe had made all the money that they had ever, that could have possibly made on Bitcoin and that this was just going to become a slowly more mainstream thing. And certainly a lot of venture capitalists did, you know, uh, you know, take that uh, position. But, um, you know, I think that uh, as we look back, uh, it's actually really, uh, it's hard to see the things that way, right? There is the understanding that we got things wrong, that that era, um, you know, produced an understanding of a Bitcoin that was incomplete or is, is you know, today dated. Uh, and I think, it can be hard for us to see our own time as like having the same problems, right? And I think as I look at the 2021, 2020 sort of, you know, uh, price activity within Bitcoin, right? There's this tremendous um, impetus to assume that we have this new understanding that the narratives that we've, we've added to Bitcoin are more correct. Uh, and I don't think that's the case, um, you know, partly because, again, just like sitting through this information over time back in the back uh, and looking at it, it it takes a long time to, I think, put Bitcoin in context, right? Um, and I'll give you just a small example before I wrap this one up. But just, um, you know, early on in Bitcoin, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is for the first year, it just didn't have a price. And that's something that your relationship to that information is going to be different than if I say it to you, that Bitcoin did not have a price and that the market, you know, monetized Bitcoin like spontaneously. Uh, to you just like digging through forum logs for a year and then seeing that for a year, everyone lived every day like with a re in a reality where Bitcoin had no price. And then at some point, Bitcoin had a price because people decided to create markets and exchanges. And that that happened outside of its creator, that that was a spontaneous market formation, formation event. So uh, it's one thing to hear a piece of information. And then I think it's another thing to try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who would have experienced that information as it occurred. Uh, and it is specifically that second thing that I have tried to do, because I think if, unless you make the leap to trying to get to that second thing, to really kind of give yourself the relational context, of that information, uh, it's very, it can be very easy to dismiss information or treat it as insignificant, right? So when, now when I look back and I look at this first period of Bitcoin history, I can say, not only is this amazing within the history of data, that data spontaneously became money, but we know now that this really hasn't happened for any of the other cryptocurrencies. They don't go through this process, right? They go through a process where they are pre-allocated to venture capitalists who, you know, uh, you know, decide that they have some value and then they're sold to the public, you know, first the private market, then the public. Uh, but that's a tremendously different, pro tremendous different process. So whether you're to argue that that necessitates the application of 
the United States security laws or global security laws is, can be a whole separate conversation, but we can at least start with the recognition that these are two different things. And I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that my work has helped try to contextualize for people. I do want to contrast your experience, though, with um, what may seem to be a more prevalent uh, position for some journalists in, in the space at this time. You changed your position. You were criticized for getting things wrong, but now you've devoted your career to this thing that you were initially criticized for, for getting wrong. You see the perhaps the opposite situation currently where an article will come out in the New York Times or something, and it gets a lot of things wrong. And we all see that. That particular journalist or the New York Times will double down on that perhaps misinformation. You did not. You changed. You, you did more research. What was that about you that, that allowed you to do that? Is that a, perhaps a, a specific part of your personality or, or, or not? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, I don't think that I'm particularly special, um, but, you know, I struggle to also find examples of other journalists who made that uh, leap. I mean, again, I think it comes down to the fact that there are just some basic psychologies around money, right? And it's just, I think that Bitcoin is so revolutionary in its intent, uh, it's very easy to write it off, right? And it's very easy to like, so, so for me, it's very confusing, like how Nathaniel Popper, who spent so much time in Bitcoin, you know, has gone on to write about something like Wall Street bets, which I think is just like within the arc of history, just a really unintent, un, unimportant phenomenon that has absolutely no consequence on not only the development of the United States, but like the U.S. public markets or the globe, right? I think ultimately his decision to focus on that work will just be insignificant. Uh, and he obviously thinks differently. <laughs> Otherwise, he would not pursue uh, the writing of that information. So again, I think it comes from the fact that they dismiss that Bitcoin is historically important. Uh, I think one of the reasons that they dismiss that Bitcoin is historically important because, is because originally they were sort of sold a certain idea about it by certain proponents of it. And then that idea that they were sold turned out not to be true. And I think they made the mistake of attributing that experience to the technology itself, where in reality, that was actually a phenomenon of the people who were in the market at that time. Uh, and the Bitcoin software that TikTok next block produces, you know, uh, solves more transactions every every ten minutes. Uh, never did that to them, right? They that was that's not something that you can you can pin Bitcoin on, right? So they, I think, start from this idea that it's just not a phenomenon, that it's not a historically important thing. Uh, and again, I I would question them to defend that point, but uh, you know, again, I can only assume that they. That's the standpoint they take uh, because they've gone on to do other things, right? Where where their work that just makes it obvious that they would have to believe that. So a few more general questions here. There's obviously no uh, known founder for Bitcoin outside of the pseudonymity of Satoshi Nakamoto. There's no founder to glorify, let alone vilify on the cover of Time magazine. No one to control the narrative. Has the pseudonymity of Bitcoin's founder been a PR issue for Bitcoin, do you think? Uh, I think uh, you can argue that different ways, right? I think people like to associate ideas with people, and we've done this historically. And I think that Satoshi's decision to be pseudonymous makes that very challenging. And that I think that is one of the, like, I, I think it's hard to argue that Bitcoin hasn't struggled in its sort of like 
ability to communicate to the mainstream because it it doesn't have that. Uh, you know, in the way that you, I think you're alluding to Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, being on the cover of Time Magazine, and and I think you know the illusion of something like that is like, oh, he's he's a Steve Jobs type figure, or you know, someone who is now within the lineage of technological progress, someone worthy of paying attention to. Um, again, I think like this is a this is a way that humans consume information, um, and it's once you realize it's just a lens, and that Satoshi sort of breaks that lens, but he does so on purpose. Uh, I think it's easy to see that it's different, but I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's hard to argue that, <laughs> that Bitcoin hasn't, uh, you know, it's needed other evangelists to communicate its message, right, uh, over time, right? And I think the, you know, the talking about Vitalik, I think is interesting is uh, because, you know, I think in some ways he is struggling with his own, you know, sort of relationship with the community. You see the community sort of moving away from sort of his viewpoints on some things and him trying to change it. So, he, you know, he has... In contrast to Satoshi, sort of this, you know, active relationship with his community uh, and Satoshi is not right. He's not there. Uh, we can only kind of uh, go back to the old records to, to see what he might have thought about things. But in, in many ways, I think the beauty of that part of the system is that it does force other people to figure out how to move it forward. Right. It does get to the idea that Bitcoin is a decentralized good, that it is a monetary system that we, the users, are now in control of. Uh, and need to move forward. And I think that the world will take some time getting used to that process. Um, but again, if you really want a decentralized monetary system, you have to have <laughs> you have to have a system where uh, there isn't a strong element of control. Uh, and Bitcoin has demonstrated consistently that it that it meets that criteria. Last year, you stated that if the cyclical nature of the Bitcoin price deviates from its path, you would be less confident in Bitcoin it certainly would have appeared to have done that. So where does your confidence stand now? I don't believe that at all. I think it actually has been phenomenally cyclical. Um, it, you know, I think going into the last two years, it was very easy to predict that 2022 would be an up year for Bitcoin, which it was, and that 2021 would be an up year for Bitcoin, which it was. I think the, yeah, Bitcoin, I, Bitcoin has definitely have proven that it has a cyclical market. Again, I would struggle to understand how people would argue otherwise, because it does seem that, you know, every four years we do have these new all-time highs that are set by Bitcoin, um, and that there's a recurring phenomena here where uh, Bitcoin trades on the larger sentiment, uh, where it, it goes through periods where, like right now, where people are obviously you know frustrated with with Bitcoin, and you know we've lost kind of the retail crowd, and it seems to be going into you know more of a sideways period, right? And that's something that last year I also felt, right? So I was I had sort of had the prediction uh, and said to everybody on on the team here at Bitcoin Magazine that you know we needed to plan for 2022 to be you know a down or sideways year. So I, I don't really know where this comes from because I think it I think it comes from this idea, and I see this both with the people who are in the maximalist camp and the people who are not even in cryptocurrency. Um, but they both may make the same mistake. Like if you don't think the halving impacts Bitcoin, then you don't think the monetary policy of Bitcoin is important. And if you don't think that it's important that Bitcoin has a programmatic monetary policy, then why, why are you interested in Bitcoin at all? So I always see this as, you know, Bitcoin will continue, continue to be cyclical as long as there are it has a programmatic monetary policy because humans will continue to plan around that monetary policy. So there'll be periods where people will like smart people will allocate money to Bitcoin ahead of these changes in the protocol. And there will be periods where people come in after those changes, expecting Bitcoin 
to appreciate in some way. I, so I, I don't know. I think this idea that we that last year deviated is very strange to me. I mean, we definitely didn't see a, a parabolic move like we have in past Bitcoin markets, uh, but that doesn't actually change the fact that over the four years between the cycles, there was a pretty similar price movement like as, as this happened. So I don't know. I'm pretty staunchly in the Bitcoin is cyclical camp. I think that has to be true because I think if, if it's not true, then the monetary policy wouldn't impact Bitcoin. And so therefore, if you are actually questioning whether Bitcoin's monetary policy is important for Bitcoin, uh, it seems like you're chipping away at a lot more of the structure there. You would actually have to be questioning some fundamental things about it. And because Bitcoin's monetary policy is programmatic, it allows for human coordination. So you'd expect for humans to coordinate around that monetary policy to their advantage, which they seem to be doing. Um, so just for the record, staunchly in the Bitcoin cyclical camp, uh, and I'll go down with that ship. No, I agree. I had asked a question as it related to um, the comments that you you made last year, but it also it, it attached to it a, a a price target for better or for worse. Mm. So I guess so. I guess the the asterisk there is then what would be a deviation from that. Yeah, I think we would have to go through a prolonged period where the Bitcoin price was sort of trading sideways or was no longer responding to, you know, the halvings, which are, you know, the, the scheduled reductions in, in monetary issuance. No, that makes sense. You know, and I'm not I'm not discounting that we, we could see such a thing. I'm just arguing that I don't believe we have seen such a thing. I mean, you could obviously argue that there wasn't a parabolic top last year, uh, but... I don't know if you really can say that because it went from $3,000 to like $6,100 in such a short amount of time. I mean, obviously, like the data isn't perfect, right? There's other things that happened. There was a global recession. Bitcoin like cratered down to like $3,000 where it probably wouldn't have otherwise without that. Um, so there's all sorts of different factors here. I just, I, I sort of dispute the idea that the Bitcoin won't be somewhat cyclical because it seems like if there's a middle point between Bitcoin going up forever and then Bitcoin going to zero, it's that it has to move between those points <laughs> with some cyclicality and then also go up into the right. So assuming those constraints, there there has to be some cyclicality to the system. And I think, you know, what do people use monetary policy for? They use it for coordination and allocation of resources. It seems like the Bitcoin monetary maximalists, their argument against the Fed largely is that people cannot allocate out capital correctly because the Fed is constantly changing rates and we're constantly sort of, you know, wondering about the mystery of what the central party will do. Well, in Bitcoin, you don't have that. You have perfect knowledge of, of what the monetary policy will be and how it will operate. But then it seems like the argument for that is that the, that the Bitcoin maximum sort of make is because the people have perfect knowledge of it, uh, they should that should be assimilated into the price uh, and therefore it shouldn't matter. Uh, I disagree with that because I think that takes the assumption that people really understand what the having is and they actually understand the importance of it within the broader monetary system. And I actually think that is the part that is incorrect. They don't. And until they do that, people will continue to, to arbitrage the two systems advantageously. And that includes coordinating around Bitcoin uh, to their economic advantage when there is an opportunity. And my bet is that those coordinations around the opportunity will continue to correspond to the having. Whether or not that results in you know, certain price projections or not, uh, I think that that behavior will likely continue to occur. And then if it stops, I, yeah, I think we would have to ask some serious questions because it would be a deviation from the normal behavior. The main reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast is your article, The Ethical Argument for Bitcoin Maximalism. And the reason is, is that I'm trying to make the case, um, one of the objectives for this podcast, that Bitcoin offers certain rights that you very well describe in this paper 
contrasted to other cryptocurrencies out there, let alone the current financial system. Uh-huh. And so as center-left um, individuals, progressives, liberals, Democrats, whatever you want to call yourself, I think a, a common thread throughout that is uh, the concern about traditional banking system and the marginalization that that uh, creates among society. Therefore, the rights that Bitcoin gives us, um, I would argue as good, and I would certainly believe that you are arguing as well. And so that's where I want to spend the next, uh, the remainder of our time is is teasing that out uh, for the audience. So if you wouldn't mind uh, breaking down what you describe as the rights uh, that Bitcoin grants its users, uh, we can contrast that with other blockchains. Yeah, well, I'll start by saying, I think, you know, definitely noticed or, or, you know, it's definitely obvious that the left, I think, has this um, focus on structures of power, right, within the United States government and, uh, you know, dismantling sort of the systematic effects of those structures of power, right, which is sort of why I've always sort of identified with that group. I think as it relates to Bitcoin, again, it can be tough to see how Bitcoin actively does that. It actually does require an understanding of both you know, how Bitcoin differentiates itself from the fiat system and also how it differentiates itself from the cryptocurrency system. So one, I would start with sort of, you know, a definition of like who the participants are in Bitcoin and then sort of make the argument that the barrier to entry to those positions is one, both low and then set two, set by the market, right? So I think in order for Bitcoin uh, to kind of perpetuate itself, you really have kind of three uh, key actors, right? You have the nodes, the people who run the software, like who validate the transactions and actually, you know, sort of follow and enforce the monetary system. Uh, you have the miners. These are the people who can f- compete, you know, who use energy to compete for new Bitcoin issuance. Uh, and then, uh, you know, last but not least, you have the developers, right? Who like propose changes to the code itself, you know, right? So they're the people who are suggesting that, you know, they will write improvements to Bitcoin or come up with new ways that Bitcoins can be used and those will be accepted by the community, right? So essentially all, all blockchains or cryptocurrencies have some union of these parties uh, and then Bitcoin, you know, has a particular version of those. Uh, and so the argument that I would make, make for Bitcoin uh, is that the barriers to entry for all of these parties in the system uh, are not enforced by some central gatekeeper. Uh, So the argument would unfold something like this. Um, If you want to become a developer in Bitcoin, there's nothing stopping you from being a developer for Bitcoin other than you acquiring that knowledge, uh, achieving something within the meritocracy of other Bitcoin developers, and then ultimately convincing other uh, Bitcoin users that they should use your code, right? Uh, So you can, I think, see from that simple explanation that um, there's no accreditation that you need for that. Uh, and the system is sort of regulated by the market for knowledge and competence, which exists sort of outside the system. Uh, on the mining side, so these are large companies that are buying custom machines uh, and burning electricity in order to claim new Bitcoins that are issued by the protocol. Uh, there is no restrictions uh, on, on how they do that, right? So the Bitcoin protocol does not require that a certain energy is, is burned in order to create or, or expended in order to create new Bitcoins. Uh, it doesn't require a certain geographical location. It doesn't describe it. They don't even need to use, you know, the same equipment, right? You can use all sorts of different types of, of machines to mine to mine Bitcoin. Uh, but here again, you know, we sort of see that um, anyone who can produce energy uh, can direct that energy to Bitcoin uh, to solve blocks and then be issued new money from the protocol. Uh, so in, in this case, there's a couple of things that are set by the market. One, which is the price of the mining machines and two of the price of electricity, but both of those things kind of occur naturally and outside Bitcoin. And anyone who finds a way 
uh, to use electricity cheaply in order to mine Bitcoin profitably can do that, right? So whether you're using excess cow manure somewhere and you're processing that and, and dedicating that to Bitcoin or using a volcano like is happening in El Salvador, anyone who has access to energy can do that. And there is no restriction on their access to that system. No one can tell you that you can't do that if you can meet the basic requirements of the system, which are scientifically imposed. Uh, and then last, there's the nodes, right? So there's the people who are running the software, so just average users. Uh, and your barrier to entry for that is that you buy a small machine or you know, call the node, or you run a node on your computer or an old laptop, uh, which just keeps uh, a record of the blockchain, which is all the financial transactions, and enforces the rules of the monetary system, right? So, and miners are often nodes as well, and developers are also nodes, but everybody basically, you know, your minimum requirement for the system is that you can just download the blockchain, enforce the rules of the system, and know with mathematical certainty that your Bitcoin is real, that these transactions that you're sending are real, that other people's transactions are real, uh, and that no one has abused the rules of the system and printed more money or done any of these types of things. Uh, so again, a bit of a long-winded explanation, but I think what I was trying to uh, get across here is that within the Bitcoin system, anyone can do all of these things. Your barrier to doing any of these things is set by the market. Uh, and specifically in the case of miners, uh, it's the use of energy, right? Which is a separate market, uh, but it's, there's no gatekeeper there, right? If you're able to kind of follow these rules, uh, you can do that, right? Simple contrast in the fiat system uh, or the U.S. government uh, dollar system or just the government dollar system, uh, basically all of those things are impossible. Uh, if you wanted to audit uh, our financial system, good luck. Uh, you'd, you'd have to call up you know, multiple government agencies, like good luck getting an idea of how much, how much money is in circulation. So your ability to kind of audit or, you know, ensure that the system is working correctly is, is not high. Uh, you know, on the mining side, if you wanted to claim new U.S. dollars uh, that are entering circulation, good luck, go start a bank, go apply at the regulatory agencies, uh, go participate in the auctions for new money uh, when money is printed, and then get in the business of, you know, lending that money out to people. Uh, and if you want to propose changes to our monetary system, well, good luck, get elected, uh, have a million dollars that you can file for the presidency, you know, run on the election like, uh, you know, Pierre Poulivier in uh, Canada and, you know, say that fiscal responsibility is part of your platform and convince a majority of the United States to do that and then go through the trouble of making, you know, changes to the monetary system through the political process, right? So I think, um, again, sort of outlining these two things, uh, you can see that one is enforced by math and it's enforced by rules. And the other system is enforced by a political process. Uh, and I think this is, you know, maybe getting the subject of, you know, the, your podcast. It's that, you know, uh, both sides of the political spectrum, I think, in our country have, have shown that they're abusing this political process for their own advantage. Uh, they're united in their abuse of this financial system for the gain of their own voters and the benefits of their own constituency. Uh, and I think to the extent that Bitcoin has become a more political movement in the United States, there's a shared recognition that the parties sort of share this behavioral activity and people see Bitcoin kind of within the schism, you know, as something that could bring that change, right? Because when, uh, you know, or if you envision a system uh, where the average user, you know, has the ability to check and balance everybody else, uh, that is a system that maybe is in spirit more similar to what our government and founders wanted to achieve uh, through democracy, which is, uh, and again, I think the wonderful thing about America is we're a country that's encouraged to constantly question whether we're living up to our values. And so, you know, I hope you found that explanation uh, at least somewhat interesting because I think it sort of gets at, um, you know, all systems are made up of, you know, multiple constituents. 
uh, just so happens to be that in case of Bitcoin, that because it is programmatic, software-based, and mathematical, um, your barrier to doing these things is low and up to your own desire for human achievement, uh, whereas the other uh, system is a product of a political apparatus that uh, you know may not be something that you're currently happy with at the moment. If I may, I want to actually read uh, the rights that you've described previously uh, that you believe Bitcoin grants its users. One is the irrevocable right to your money, the ability to write and review code. Two, the ability to post and validate transactions. Three, the right to a known money supply that will not change. And four, the right to dissent. You don't have to run certain upgrades to the protocol. You can run the original should you desire. I think that's very well, that's very succinct, right? And I think a good way to contrast against not only the uh, monetary and fiscal policies of the U.S. government, but also other uh, blockchains. So I'd like you to, to comment a little bit on how that does contrast to, say, the other uh, popular blockchains like Ethereum. But I also want to touch on uh, number four and the right to dissent. So first, what are your, what are your thoughts on how these uh, rights, as you describe, contrast to, say, something like Ethereum? Yeah, I presented that framework because I think it was really interesting, right? Um, I think it's often unclear what the difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are. And I think to the extent that people start evaluating that question, they do so from a certain lens, right? Uh, that lens is highly shaped by certain factors that are actually, uh, you know, uh, totally created outside of the realm of those softwares, right? So one of those uh, things that I think really shapes that lens is the coin market cap kind of price, you know, uh, wall of price charts uh, phenomenon where, you know, you have sort of each of these softwares is given like a fancy logo and a ticker symbol and then some sort of price, right? And I think it's really tempting to on a surface level to think that this is what makes these things different, that you can just pick the Dogecoin because you like dogs and the cat coin because you like cats, uh, and that that differential that you see on the surface is actually what differentiates those things. Uh, I think the overwhelming conclusion of people who have been in the industry is that that is a fiction. Uh, that fiction exists at, to the detriment of consumers who are entering the space and is therefore wrong and unethical. Uh, and again, the attempt of this article was to sort of you know, push that comparison. So if in the previous, you know, analogy, I pushed the comparison of, of Bitcoin versus the fiat system or the government system, because it's a bit easier uh, with the Bitcoin to cryptocurrency system, it gets a bit harder, right? Because you actually then have to sort of understand how these softwares operate. And to the extent that you join that software as a user who is both running it and owning a piece of the software by holding your money, in that software, uh, you have to have a deeper understanding, right? So a surface level comparison that, uh, you know, a lot of people will make is that, you know, in Bitcoin, you can run a simple command with your software and you can validate uh, the total money supply of Bitcoin uh, and, you know, know how much Bitcoin there will ever be, right? You just have a total guarantee to how, how the monetary system works. Um, in Ethereum, which is another popular cryptocurrency, uh, that is a very, uh, there's debate about whether you can do that at all, uh, because essentially, you know, it's so uh, cost, uh, cost so much to run a node to actually download the entirety of the uh, Ethereum system. Uh, and it costs, uh, you know, and there's actually disagreement among sort of the other kind of instances that have a whole copy of the Ethereum system as to how much money supply there is. Uh, and that money supply is increasing. So I think making that basic comparison, uh, you could say the system in which you have more of a right to know the money supply and to know that that money supply is finite, that's likely going to be a system that advantages that user. 
Whereas the system that has the expanding money supply and in which the money supply, it's not, it's not clear what it is or how it's being validated. You could argue that that has a weaker, um, you know, a guarantee for the user because the user in both instances, you know, just wants to put their money into something that will hold value, right? So if you actually want to make an assessment of either situation, you know, you would you would say that that uh, you know again, and that's not saying like one choice is bad, right? You may ultimately decide to make a choice to use some software, accepting that that that, that thing offers a weaker guarantee. Uh, I think what I was trying to pose with that article is that people are not doing that. They're actually they're not making sophisticated calculations. They're actually making decisions to their detriment because they don't understand, you know, how these, how these, um, how these softwares work. Right. So, uh, you know, taking another one, the right to review and run code and then, you know, participate in changes to that code. Uh, Well, it is true in other cryptocurrencies that you can write and you can review the code, but if you were going to run, you know, a node and audit that software, right. Other cryptocurrencies make that prohibitive, right. So you as a user actually can't decide changes. And then there's, um, you know, processes by which those changes are made, right? So that really gets us, I think, to point four, which I think is really the big, biggest differentiator in Bitcoin, which is that you have the right to dissent, right? And I think this is something that's really, really powerful about Bitcoin and that I was trying to articulate in that article is that, you know, Bitcoin uses a specific set of tools to upgrade its software. Uh, and those specific sets of tools, you know, are designed where developers introduce new ideas for the protocol, uh, those are accepted by the users who run nodes, uh, but the users who do not accept those changes are not disenfranchised. They do not lose access to their money. If you're in a coma and you wake up in six years, it's highly likely that you'll be able to you know, log on to your Bitcoin wallet and node and your money will still be there. Uh, and in other cryptocurrencies, that is just simply not the case. Uh, they make decisions in ways that essentially mean that you have to go along with what the majority of the users want. And that if you don't, the consequences can be as severe as you having to keep your money in a whole different software or that your software or your money might no longer have any value. Uh, And I think a lot of users don't really appreciate that that is a choice that they that that is a process that they're engaging in, right? That they're engaging in a dynamic system that is changing and that those changes can happen to their disadvantage. Uh, And I think, granted, you know, we haven't seen too many instances where that has occurred. Uh, But my assumption is, I think, as we go farther along, especially with how ambitious some of these other cryptocurrencies are, that that will occur, that, that, you know, and that will become a much more noticeable feature of the cryptocurrency non-Bitcoin system over time. Well, let's hang on the descent for just a little bit before I want to ask you about um, how you uh, compare the current uh, alternatives to Bitcoin as a recreation of the current financial system. But again, with regard to dissent, you, you've you've referred to that as um, when it actually occurs with other cryptocurrencies as pushing out minority groups who who do dissent, uh, as in like Ethereum Classic. But what does this dissent mean within Bitcoin, practically speaking? Do you see in the future that that dissent could allow for new economies, so to speak, to be built on top of the the, the protocol version that they want to run? Yeah, this is interesting. I think there's still this is like a very fertile and active like area of debate around Bitcoin. And I've circulated this argument with with a great many people who have different conclusions about it. So I will say that, you know, where this argument comes from and sort of using this idea of the majority and the minority is that in existing political systems, you know, this is very clear, right? Whoever is in power is the majority, and usually who is the people who are not in power are the minority. And I think we know and have experienced that democracies 
operate in the case where the majority often can enforce their view and enforce their rules on the minority. And that this is part of the political process within democracies. I think, I think in the United States, with the exception of things that are guaranteed constitutionally, right? And I think that's where the judicial system and the Congress sort of come into play, right? Uh, but again, I think that you look at democratic systems as sort of having a majority, there's a minority, uh, the majority is trying to sort of usually enforce some changes to the rules of the minority, but we have this check and balance, which is this, which is this constitution uh, that sort of moderates, you know, between the two. I think the other cryptocurrencies, you know, they have some version of this type of system. So again, in Bitcoin, um, in order to change a consensus system like Bitcoin, you have to have greater than 50% of the users running the software uh, who decide to make a change, right? So, uh, and that, and ironically, this, this change is actually <laughs> indistinguishable from an attack on the chain, right? So this is a weird paradox uh, of, of the software design where, again, just to give an example, like, uh, you know, if we wanted to... Um, well, again, I think early on in, in, in cryptocurrency, again, these, these features were a bit a bit hard to figure out, right? Like we we didn't really know how to make changes to cryptocurrencies because there are consensus systems. Everyone has to agree uh, on those changes. And so it results in, in some weird uh, quirks, right? Bitcoin has pursued a path, uh, again, where majorities can form and they can come to a conclusion that a certain feature is better and then they can enact that feature, uh, but they can't penalize people who don't uh, enact that feature. And so this is a key distinction. It would be akin to saying like the United States could enact laws uh, for its citizens that the majorities could enforce, but those laws could never disenfranchise someone. That that person could never have less rights. They could only not have some benefit. Uh, and that's that's a really profound thing to actually sit and think about because it sort of makes you wonder within our you know existing democratic system, well, how many how many things the, that the majorities want are actually taking away rights from people? Are they actually introducing some like new feature that people can opt into? Or are they actually taking away uh, some person's right to something, right? So Bitcoin has, has kind of grappled with this. And I think early on, there was a lot of substantive conversation about, you know, whether Bitcoin should be majority-led. And Bitcoin ultimately made the decision that it wouldn't be majority-led, that it would be consensus-led. And I think, you know, when you Think about the lineage of governance. Uh, this is this is a new thing. We we actually lack a good verbiage to describe it. Please try to make the, the distinction there. I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, it's 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 very different, right? So uh, a consensus system, right? And I think you can look up the definition of consensus. To make a decision by consensus means you almost need near universal agreement, right? Uh, and that's very different from a majority sort of government where you may only need fifty over 50% of people to agree, right? So then you sort of ask yourself, uh, how different would our political system be if 95% of people had to agree on something <laughs> before it happens, right? You can sort of see a lot of these like wedge issues of our time as things that sort of benefit from being something that you can impose with a majority of over 50%, right? I think this, you can think about, uh, you know, uh, voting rights, like abortion, uh, civil rights. There was a, like, a lot of things where, you know, if you actually looked at how many people sort of agreed with the current consensus, it's actually not, it's not significantly above 50%, right? Um, I, I actually think the United States government is is fairly good at this. So I'll actually I'll actually make a stump for democracy here because I think, uh, you know, when you look at something like, you know, marijuana laws in the United States, that that's actually a good example of like, those laws have changed, but they've changed because consensus has changed, right? If you ask most people under 40, they, they broadly just believe that marijuana laws are outdated and they need to be changed. And they're generally pro-recreational, you know, use of certain drugs, right? So I think that consensus has changed amongst people, 
And therefore, laws have changed, but those laws really operate in somewhat of a majoritarian way. Like oftentimes, in order to to actually enforce something in these states, you need more than 50% of the people to agree with you. And in states where less than 50% of the people agree with that opinion, uh, there hasn't been any legislative impact, right? So I think Bitcoin definitely tries to replicate the former consensus building, right? This idea that we can sort of reach a generational kind of understanding or universal understanding on something. Uh, without the second apparatus, which is that majorities can form and then, you know, enforce something on some some minority, uh, and because of that, um, you know, it gets it gets kind of, um, you know, again, it's just it's a different system, you know. And I think the other cryptocurrencies they definitely uh, skew towards the latter. They skew towards being majoritarian uh, because effectively their arguments are, you know, we have this ambitious roadmap to deliver all these features. We've published this roadmap for you to see. Uh, therefore, we have your implied consent to make these changes. And therefore, as long as more than 50% of people agree to update the software, uh, we are going to just invalidate everybody else because we operate on the assumption that you have already given us consent to do these things. Uh, and we are operating with your consent to do so. Uh, therefore, you should have known and understand that. You should have read those terms of service. Uh, and if you don't like it, go somewhere else, right? So they're not really tolerant uh, to minority groups. And my argument would be that that makes them less useful as monies. Because essentially, you know, if you are storing value in one of these other systems and you find yourself in a scenario where you don't agree with what the majority is doing, uh, it is very likely that you will find yourself in a position where, you know, the thing, the data, the cryptocurrency that you've determined to have value to you no longer holds value in the same way. So the technical mechanism, you know, actually doesn't work for you as the end user, right? And I think, again, just sort of contrasting, um, in Bitcoin, that, that has not happened, right? People have not, we've never kind of made a technical decision that has done that. And there's a strong commitment of the community not to do that. Uh, so, you know, you may see a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, they have, you know, they tout these sort of advanced features and mechanisms, uh, and they do have these things, uh, but they often have come, you know, at the expense of making changes to the software in a certain way. And Bitcoin, again, has prioritized this, this, this um, you know, way of moving forward where, um, you know, anyone who's running older versions of software, they can just continue to do so. If you don't like a specific change that Bitcoin has made, you can continue using the old software as if it's Bitcoin. You know, I think one of the interesting theoreticals part of this debate is, well, for how long can they use that? Does that software degrade in efficiency with the rest of the network? Those are some interesting questions. But I think right now what we have in Bitcoin is, you know, there is the theoretical commitment to continue to respect minorities within the community who might not want certain things done with their money. Uh, to reject the idea that a mere majority is enough to invalidate those users. Uh, and again, I think the argument here is just that that leads those users who use Bitcoin to have a stronger guarantee to their money. The other cryptocurrencies, to the extent that you are storing your money in there, you 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 may have that money and maybe you're real. It may actually feel and look very similar to Bitcoin and have a lot of the same features, uh, but you still are using, uh, you st- that money still exists in a system uh, that may make decisions based on one, this idea that you have prior consent to their roadmap, and then two, the idea that if you do not continue to follow that roadmap as determined by some majority, uh, that you uh, may no longer be able to participate in that system or else have to kind of go off on your own and create another system that's similar. Well, we could certainly spend the rest of the podcast on that uh, very question, uh, but I do want to move on to getting you to extrapolate a little bit more on 
how you see the alternatives to Bitcoin, the other 15,000 plus uh, tokens recreating the, the current system of financialization. In my opinion, and I believe it is yours, that it's not necessarily a new novel technology that we should be flocking to per se, but rather, in essence, it's recreating the current financialization of uh, what, what we already have. Like if you're trying to seek out a new uh, system of money, the other tokens are not it. It's just the same financialization, but on a blockchain. Yeah, I think there's multiple ways to answer that. I think the common framework is to look at Bitcoin as money and then to look at the cryptocurrencies broadly as some type of fintech or some sort of like startup type activity. I think that's a very strange framing. I have some problems with it. I or even to kind of narrowly like view other cryptocurrencies as securities. I mean, I think it's uh, very clear that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are different. Um, I don't dispute that they might be useful, like in some way, right? So there might be specific things that they allow you to do at present that Bitcoin does not allow you to do. Um, but to the extent that they rely on like the creation of a new form of money or value to do that, I think that means that we should have kind of a higher amount of questioning about how the system fu systems function. Uh, and I would argue like the greater human pursuit is to continue to improve the Bitcoin software, right? Because it actually uh, has those higher guarantees and because there's no real limitations to the Bitcoin system. I, I think there's this idea that's really pushed by the alternative cryptocurrency community that Bitcoin is very limited and that it doesn't change and it can't change. Uh, and I think this is very dangerous because it's predicated on a lot of very strange assumptions that are what Bitcoiners would consider sort of high time preference, right? It's it's the idea that, oh, well, you know, we need to be able to launch all these applications or smart contracts on Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin can't do that or is not doing that, we need to go make them somewhere else. Uh, and because we need to make them somewhere else, oh, we get to print some money and sell it to you. <laughs> uh, and the catch is that it's really that third thing that they want to do. <laughs> they actually want to create some new form of value and sell it to you in order to justify the service. And in Bitcoin, you know, there is an, an understanding that, you know, we might not offer those service, right? So there, there does not exist an easy way right now in Bitcoin for you to, you know, uh, to run a software that connects you with other parties to do some type of decentralized lending, right? Uh, and I would say that it's very easy to say that this exists in the other cryptocurrencies. Uh, but it exists under certain conditions, one in which the other cryptocurrencies have sort of, you know, issued or sold this this new asset in order to operate the service. Uh, and then two, in which there's there's actually no reason that Bitcoin couldn't do that thing that you want. Uh, it's just that it doesn't do that thing right now uh, because we need to be more careful about making changes with Bitcoin and extending Bitcoin, uh, you know, requires the care to not invalidate, you know, all these other users and to continue building on the money. So you can sort of argue that to the extent that other cryptocurrencies compete against Bitcoin, they largely compete on time horizon, right? They offer some new feature that Bitcoin doesn't have now, uh, but that Bitcoin might have later, uh, and therefore you should use them. And I think that argument, um, you know, again, is sort of is predicated on this assumption that Bitcoin can't or won't change. I, I think that's demonstrably inaccurate if you look at how Bitcoin has progressed. It's become you know, much more usable uh, in a lot of different ways, but I think those are more fundamental, right? So you can, you know, when I entered the industry in 2013, you were told to keep your Bitcoin on a paper wallet, which was basically just a QR code printed on a piece of paper. Uh, now you have the ability to basically 
you know, have a multi-sig multi wallet, multiple hardware wallets that hold your keys across mul multiple geographies. You know, we're getting to the point where, you know, some of these setups are going to be more programmatic and trustless, you know, through using Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, there's even mnemonic seed phrases, the idea that you can save your seed phrase in Bitcoin with 12 or 24 words, like that was an actual invention that someone made, right? Like when, when Satoshi did not design that as part of the system. Um, so, you know, uh, or Lightning Network, right? The ability to move Bitcoin payments like around the world, you know, in different ways uh, without using the Bitcoin base layer. These are all dramatic changes to Bitcoin. And I think that the cryptocurrency sector, um, again, because it operates in a certain way under certain perceptions, uh, it, it, it obfuscates how much change there has been because it introduces this like plethora of options, right? It's just sort of deluge of these other 18,000 cryptocurrencies. Uh, and so that does two things. It makes you, one, as an intellectual, sort of more skeptical of Bitcoin's progress when really in reality you shouldn't be. Uh, and the other thing it does is it sort of, you know, traps you into sort of convincing, well, there must be a use for all these other things because someone created them. And I would debate that point. I think some people within the Bitcoin community have done a good job about circulating like newer arguments for why that might be inaccurate or there might be cases where you know we should support that so Udi Wertheimer uh who you might know on on Twitter I think has has done a good job of this I mean his essential conjecture is that you know uh, a startup that offers a bitcoin service and that sells equity to private accredited investors is not different than a cryptocurrency that offers a service to bitcoin users that sells tokens to the public. Uh, I think the verdict's out on that. I don't, I think the community is currently still debating that. Uh, but again, I think I would go back to the original question, which is if you think the Bitcoin is the best money, if you think it has the strongest guarantees for users, if you think that it's stronger than the existing financial system, even if you thought that the other cryptocurrencies were offering some service that Bitcoin can't, won't, should, or, you know, you know, would want to provide uh, the correct thing or the more moral thing. And this is why I think you going back to what you said, the ethical argument, why is it an ethical argument? Uh, because ethics is the study of, you know, human action and what is right, right? And I think the, the, the thing that you should want to do is you should want to extend that system uh, that is going to work in the future, that is actually moving forward and advancing humanity in some way, uh, which I would argue Bitcoin is, uh, even if that means putting aside like the immediate gain that you might be able to profit from, you know, this thing that provides the immediate advantage uh, through some other means. I think that's an important thing to, to touch on. And I would be lying if I didn't say that I've had that temptation over the past several years to uh, YOLO into some other token. But as I've often said, I see Bitcoin as not only um, an investment from my standpoint and the privilege that I have, but also as philanthropy, knowing that it can augment uh, the rest of the community and its users around the world. And for me to go in on something else for the, the hope of profits solely uh, seems unethical. Well, that's that's what I think like that there's an going back to structures of power and why the left, I think, should 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 care about Bitcoin, right? It's because when a new dollar goes into Bitcoin, and the value of Bitcoin rises, that simultaneously sort of benefits everyone in the system, right? Everyone gains equally from that. You could argue that in the other cryptocurrencies that that's not the case because they are sort of founded on other founder groups that, you know, oftentimes have nonprofit foundations, that oftentimes have investors, that often have, you know, venture capital investors, that when a new dollar sort of goes into that side of the space, uh, there's not the same collective benefit. 
the value accrual to the uh, upside, you know, sort of increase in that token's value is the same as a, a traditional startup. So the same way that we gave all of this power within our current democratic system to the channels of information distribution, like Facebook, like Google, et cetera, uh, I think, you know, to the extent that the left has a problem with, with how those structures of power have been enforced and who benefited from that structure of power, uh, my argument to the left is that you, you should also be, be wary of these things again. The cryptocurrency market beyond Bitcoin does not have a solution to that imbalance problem. It actually, if you accept that other cryptocurrencies are essentially tech startups, which I think would be the best way to look at them, uh, and knowing what you know about the last generation of tech startups and how they they progressed and and sort of you know became adversarial to the interests of their users, my question would be, why would you want them to become monetary systems? <laughs> like, why, why would you actually want them? Uh, to, to flourish because essentially, you know, at that point you are really opening the doors up to, you know, the same engines of Silicon Valley. And I think Jack Dorsey really does an excellent job of framing this, right? It's, it's that, you know, when he says, talks about web three and cryptocurrencies uh, being the VCs are the problem, right? Uh, so, you know, again, if you, if you believe that the current system, you know, has been perverted by these mechanisms that our democracy is suffering from, you know, the network effects of these large corporations. Again, I would encourage you to look at Bitcoin because you can arguably say that, that Bitcoin does not operate that way. You know, uh, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of Bitcoin, had no, you know, has, has no founding stake. There's no startup. There's no equity that he has in Bitcoin Corporation. Uh, you know, to the extent that he owns Bitcoin, he he got them through the same process that everyone else did of, of burning energy and then, you know, uh, collecting the issuance of Bitcoin. And because of that, the value approval in Bitcoin is, is fundamentally different, right? So it's, again, to the extent that the left is interested in new structures of power, um, I think they should be really interested in Bitcoin because there, there just simply isn't a way to recreate what it created. And I think, again, there was a time where the other cryptocurrencies, you know, probably had some justification and thinking, well, hey, what if we try these, these different ways? And I think that after seeing 10 years of experimentation, uh, we can just clearly see that as a monetary system. Bitcoin has certain advantages that the other cryptocurrencies don't. And one of the reasons that they, they don't have these advantages is they can't get over this bootstrapping problem. You know, well, it's just like, how would you reinvent money? Well, you know, uh, great question, but Bitcoin's already <laughs> already answered it. Uh, so why are we reevaluating it? And that was going to be uh, my second to last question was if you had any additional thoughts on the progressive case for Bitcoin, but I think you uh, nailed it there. So my, my, my last question then is what gives you hope, Pete? Well, I think my hope right now is like looking at the political landscape is that I think there's tremendous opportunities for Bitcoin to uh, disrupt the status quo, right? I think um, it's great to see that there are underprivileged and marginalized communities, especially the BIPOC, you know, uh, Bitcoin users who have who have really found Bitcoin and, and sort of see its value as, as something that's outside of the system that has, uh, you know, marginalized them and entrenched, you know, uh, their status within the, the, the monetary system and then continues to exploit them. Uh, so I think that's really encouraging. I mean, I've been very encouraged by what's been going on with the mining, you know, industry in the United States, um, particularly, you know, one of the narratives that I think we put forward in the book that I helped author Bitcoin and the American dream, which is kind of focused on us politics is that, you know, I think, um, again, like all Americans should agree on certain things, right? And we should have certain kind of common goals. And I think one of the big fault lines over the last 50 years, if we look at the United States as a whole, is that we've really struggled 
to grapple with this question of what should you do, you know, with the United States, uh, you know, economy post manufacturing, right? We've, we've chosen to outsource manufacturing. We've chosen to benefit from cheap goods abroad. Um, and that was a decision that was, you know, despite the promises of many political leaders, you know, continues to persist. Um, and I think one of the interesting things I wrote in a recent Forbes article is if you look at the, you know, demographic of where Bitcoin is creating jobs in the United States right now, it is dramatically different from a Silicon Valley tech startup. There, these are jobs are going to Ohio, they're going to Pennsylvania, they're going to Georgia, they're going to Texas. Uh, they're going to the kind of rural areas that have large old industrial infrastructure that are close to the electricity grid and have sources of power. Uh, and I think, you know, I think if I was someone on the on the left, right, or or, or right, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the right always plays well in the rural areas. But I think, you know, uh, we both should want, you know, the rural economies of America to flourish because I think one of the things that you know has been broadly bad for us has been this consolidation of young people in the cities, uh, you know, the decimation of families, which you know have you know had to travel, you know, uh, and move away from these old centers, right? And we do have these like sort of old proud American cities that you know are sort of you know can could use an exciting industry, and I think the fact that Bitcoin potentially solves that. Uh, to some extent, by using that infrastructure and creating high-tech jobs is, is you know, tremendously fascinating. And I, I, I would hope that it would be something that both parties could support. Um, and I, and I think that's something where, you know, if you're thinking about advancing sort of, um, you know, arguments for why Bitcoin is bipartisan, um, well, you know, I think it's bipartisan because, of, you know, if you think about how many other things in the United States that are political issues are, are both good for inner city Americans uh, who have been marginalized and good for rural Americans who have been marginalized, the fact that Bitcoin is great for both or it could possibly benefit both of those uh, demographics, I would think would make it something that would be very hard to oppose, right? I do think we will see our political leaders try to oppose Bitcoin. Um, but I mean, I think that the broad popular support behind it will make that difficult. So, you know, look, I'm interested to see the U.S. political uh, situation evolved. I mean, I'm optimistic despite, you know, some of the, you know, politicians who are coming in and, you know, they're making big promises about Bitcoin. It'll be interesting to see what it gets done. But, you know, if I'm looking at the U.S. political landscape right now in Bitcoin, I, I think I'm optimistic about where Bitcoin fits in because it seems to defy categorization, right? It's, uh, you know, small businesses have something to gain because, you know, you have lower kind of fees. You don't have to use these old kind of, you know, legacy processors anymore, especially you can probably, you know, start more startups in Bitcoin. There's more room for innovation. Rural Americans gain because mining offers, you know, such a huge industry that could potentially boom, boom over the next 10 years. Inner city Americans can benefit because, you know, you can just go to an ATM now drop in $20 and get out Bitcoin to your wallet without having to use any of these like kind of banks and legacy systems that, uh, you know, have exploited you. And I, you know, I'm, again, I'm interested to see what the parties do for this. Right. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, we live in a time when everything gets politicized and, uh, you know, right now it seems like the right is turning on to Bitcoin and I hope it would be that the left realizes that has, it has just as much to gain. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> So what, uh, if I could end with a question for you, uh, I'd be curious, like what's, what's your outlook on, uh, you know, Bitcoin in the 2024 election cycle? I know there's a lot of, uh, Francis Suarez at, at Bitcoin 2022, making a big appeal that the next president would be a Bitcoiner. What's, what are your thoughts on that? I fully expect to be interviewing a democratic candidate on the, on the podcast, uh, who is pro Bitcoin. I think it's inevitable that, uh, it's going to be a part of people's platform. I think the primaries uh, coming up this year will be uh, kind of a litmus test for that. 
And so if we see, you know, Erica Rhodes do well and uh, some of the other candidates, then I think it's inevitable that it's going to be a part of the, the platforms. And I just hope that there's going to be uh, somebody from uh, the Democratic side that will uh, come out as a proponent as opposed to against it and then make it a partisan issue. But I'm hopeful given the fact that you are already seeing bipartisan uh, support um, with uh, the, the blockchain caucus, et cetera. So uh, like you, I'm hopeful. And I think we just keep doing the, the work that, that we're doing and it, it should eventually get us there. Well, appreciate your work and thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, I appreciate there being more, uh, voices in the space that are a little bit more pro, uh, the left side. I am from, I am from Massachusetts, you know, so you can't, can't, uh, can't get too far away from your roots, I guess. That's right. Well, in my opinion, you're the, the best journalist in the space. And so it was an honor to have you on the podcast. Please tell the listeners where they can find your work and, uh, the books that you helped work on as well. Yeah, awesome. Uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore. Uh, do daily posts on on Bitcoin history, um, and so those are cool to follow and like. And uh, you can also follow me on Bitcoin Magazine uh, and Forbes, uh, where I where I publish content. And yeah, new book on Amazon, Bitcoin and the American Dream, uh, co-written with uh, Jimmy Song, Lamar Wilson, uh, Gary Leland, a bunch of other uh, you know uh, people in the space. Uh, you know, really was an interesting experience. Eight Bitcoiners in a house from different demographics talking about why they should why the united states should embrace bitcoin uh great read pick it up on amazon pete thank you so much 